everybody. Welcome to Terror Talk on this rainy California oh, day. Oh my gosh, it's that time of year. I'll tell you what though, at least we've had a few days of in-between sunshine because last year it was relentless. We totally have. We had a little bit of a break where it was warm and now we're back to having rain. And it looks like that's how it's going to be and I'd much rather live in that impermanence than the constant depressing nonstop. Agreed. And if you're listening to this in the future, we're recording it in January and that's like, that's our rainy season. That's our kind of our rainy season, yeah. January, part of February. Obviously we get rain throughout the rest of the year off and on, but January, if I look back in my, you know, notes and social media and all that, you can always see pictures of rain in January. Oh, yeah. So here we are. Happy. Poor rain. us in Southern California <laughs> with such terrible weather. <laughs> well, we all have our realities. What better day to talk about DNA testing? <laughs> I always bring topic. these really light topics to yeah, the show. Yeah. I like this topic, though, because I think, you know, we've had so many shows across decades of television that have used DNA. Yeah. Some have used it correctly. Others have, you know, fabricated it for dramatic effect. Comes up all the time in our true crime stuff. Yeah. Because yeah. it really changed the way in which we, you know, either rule out an alleged perpetrator or we rule in. Radically. Yeah. And how the databases were created and, and all of that. It's like it's really radically changed how well, we've it, dealt with everything. It all kind of happened by accident, which I think is interesting. <laughs> I mean, they were looking for certain things, but they never thought it would lend itself to criminology. Innovation is always sort of Yeah, like, it's like, oh, we oh, got look. here. <laughs> yeah. So I want to first give a shout out to um, one of my... Uh, largest sources for this episode, which is a, a great podcast. I fell, you know, I fell into by doing research for this, this particular episode and it's called murder with my husband. I love the name of it. <laughs> and they are really funny. The husband in this episode, I haven't watched a lot of theirs. They're on YouTube. So it's more like a, you know, a video cast, mm -hmm. but they present true crime cases and have conversations about it. And, uh, I'm going to do a case presentation at the end of this episode. And most of my information comes from this particular episode they did called the pathway murders episode from 2020. Oh, I'm sorry. I think it was from, I think they did it in like 2022. And then I also researched an article from uh, Sophia Quaglia in discover from 2023. It was called the evolution of DNA forensics and its impact on solving crimes. So those are my two biggest sources for today. I just want to make sure I'm acknowledging that input. You bet. The history of forensics goes a lot further back than we sometimes think about. We think about it as re relatively newer science. And I think in some ways it is, depending on the application of it. But the history of forensic, forensics actually dates back to 1848, and this is something that I got from the the Murder With My Husband podcast. She was talking about a book titled, uh, it's from China, and it translates into English as Washing Away of Wrongs. And the earliest book that documented any use of forensic technique, it was um, about a murder in a Chinese village where the victim had been murdered with a sickle, and the person investigating had everyone in the area who was working actually lay their sickles down in a collected area. Mm. 
And when a swarm of flies gathered on a trail of blood that had been left behind, <laughs> that's how the investigator determined who the perpetrator was. And that person ended up confessing to the murder. Okay. So, so that is a cool story because we don't usually go back that far. We, we think about it as like an American or European science that came into effect in the 1970s. And it really goes back much further. So, of course it yeah. does, right? <laughs> and then in comparison, um, in 1902, fingerprinting was actually first used to solve a crime. So looked like about a half a century later. Hmm. Yeah. So fingerprint identification is barely a century old. It's really not as old as we think. And it became more popular in like the last 50 years. That's so interesting because I was watching something where, in fact, we'll be talking, I'll be talking about this because we're doing killer couples for Valentine's Day. Because, <laughs> you know. That's the right thing to perky. do. Uh, <laughs> death and destruction yeah. for Valentine's Day. And, and. It used to be before we were really using DNA testing, it used to be that killers would cut off fingers, toes, yeah. et cetera, because of that. I think maybe we overinvested in our use of that. And so killers got the idea that they could just cut things off and that would be fine. Mm -hmm. Like that we couldn't recognize teeth or bone or, structure. Or our tongue has a print. There you go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There you go. Yeah, no, it's so true. Um, so but it's, all, it's just so fascinating how, and I'll get into some of the data around like, how we are very similar to most people with a very small percentage that makes us off. Mm. So the 1980s, which is what most people really associate DNA with, actually did change the course of DNA and, and just more so though how it was utilized and executed. So the process influenced how even the most microscopic information left by a human could become incriminating. So they became more sophisticated, although it had been around, you know, for a little while. Mm -hmm. um, so some facts here is only identical twins share the exact same DNA patterns. So if Shannon and I were identical twins, not fraternal twins, and we committed a crime, I committed a crime. Shannon could be accused. She has the same exact DNA. There's no change in pattern. Sadness. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do it. So this process influenced how even the most microscopic information, you know, left by a twin could even incriminate yeah. a twin. But most DNA is similar between person to person. I actually didn't know. I didn't know it was this similar. There's only very small sections that vary greatly which is what the forensic investigators end up relying upon. Mm -hmm. So it's like upwards of 90 some percent. You and I have the same exact DNA. Mm. And then there's this really, really, really tiny piece that they're like, Oh, there's the pattern. Yeah. That's what separates Shannon and me. Doesn't that make sense? Just sort of psychologically. Oh, right? totally. <laughs> it's amazing how biology can mirror what we know oh or God. how psychology has grown out of what we know about. Oh, biology. for sure. It's really, but you can imagine without the level of sophistication, how many people were wrongfully accused when they started to use this without, you know, I'm going to talk about how it changed. Right. Because it was, they, they started using hair follicles when they thought they were like, oh, I can tell by looking at the root. It's like, no, you put so many wrong people in prison. <laughs> Going backwards for a moment, the chemical DNA was first discovered in 1869, but its role in genetic inheritance wasn't demonstrated until 1943. In 1869, Swiss psychologist, chem, or psychological chemist, excuse me, Swiss psychological chemist, Friedrich Miescher, first identified what he called nuclein 
in the nuclei of human white blood cells, which we now know today is deoxo or deoxyribonucleic acid, deoxyribonucleic acid, otherwise DNA. In 1952, Alfred Hershey and Martha Chase helped confirm that DNA was actually genetic material. Hmm. And then in 1977, Sanger, Gilbert, and Maxim developed methods for DNA sequencing, but it was problematic because the sequencing, to put this together, it just took too long. It wasn't practical. Okay. Okay. So the method for DNA profiling as we know it today is actually largely attributed to a man by the name of Sir Alec Jeffries, who will become relevant in the second half of this podcast as well when we talk about this milestone case. So he was a British geneticist, and Jeffries' groundbreaking work led to real-world applications from immigration disputes to solving heinous crimes. So aside from the invention of DNA fingerprinting, he has made, a, he was really a pioneer and he contributed to the field of human genetics. And we, he was coming off the heels of like heady and profound research achievements from his colleague, Richard Flavel or Flavel. He was faced with the question of like, we have all this information now. We know it does this. We know it's connected to that. But like, what do we, what do we do with it? Okay, great. It's an egg. What do we do with the egg? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So in 1977, he goes back to England to accept this lecture position in the Department of Genetics at the University of uh, Leicester or Leicester, United Kingdom, where he remains today as a professor. But scientifically, the decision of what to do next becomes the problem. It's like, okay, all right, I have this information. How do we use this? So he engages in various studies that continue to lead him to various dead ends. Okay. So now I have, it's like he peaked and then he kept hitting these roadblocks of like, maybe this isn't all that useful. And then all of a sudden, which like what great, you know, people who invent or scientists all of a sudden he says, this is his quote on the morning Five past nine of Monday, the 10th of September, 1984, <laughs> we got our first truly awful DNA fingerprint purely by chance, mm. Jeffrey says. Yet as soon as he took a look at what he remembers being a horrible, smudgy, blurry mess, he could tell what was going on. He could spot the family group present in that blot and distinguish all three members by what appeared to be a simple pattern of inheritance. Mm. He said, we suddenly realized that we'd essentially stumbled upon a DNA-based method for biological identification. Hmm. He said, my life completely changed at that point. <laughs> yeah, It's and, like, boom. And a lot of our lives changed because yeah. of that. So he, at that point, it was like every inventor's dream is like he dropped the right thing and it was all of a sudden this whole door opened to a whole newfound science and how we were able to identify people through this blueprint. So in 1986, DNA was first introduced as evidence in the United States criminal court system. 
In little more than a decade, DNA technology became an increasingly powerful forensic tool for identifying or eliminating suspects. When biological evidence such as saliva, skin, blood, hair, or semen is left at a crime scene. Prior to Jeffrey's brilliance and this epiphany and this discovery, unfortunately, there were people already in prison that had been wrongfully accused because they were using kind of botched methods of this. Mm. So I want to quickly discuss a man by the name of Kirk Odom. In 1981, a man by the name of Kirk Odom was sentenced to more than 20 years in prison after his guilt was reliant upon a hair follicle. So this is what they would use before. It was like this half-assed way to what Jeffries ended up finding. So investigators began to study hair follicles, like from the root, after recognizing how, and we've talked about this on other shows, Shannon, eyewitness testimony and forensic sketches really weren't very helpful. No. Because... Even though we still do them We still the do them, and they, they might be supplemental, but they're no longer this determining It's piece. kind of the way to get to something else. You it know is. what I mean? Like they're trying, I think they're always trying to get to confessions. Exactly. <laughs> and what we know about, and if you haven't heard that before and it's new information to you, eyewitness testimony and forensic sketches are, can be misleading and lead to wrongfully accusing someone because, well, for two reasons. One, you know, especially if it's from race to race, for example, the, if you're Caucasian, there's research showing that you're going to mess up features in African-Americans and maybe think they all look the same, which is right. a horrible way to say it, but right. it, it just is. And people from races will mess up what white people, what look, white people like, look like. What white people look like. It's just the same. It's just how yep. we've processed. We know our own, right? That's right. So, and then in, in addition to that, we only have a fleeting opportunity to see someone in a lineup. Like you get a second mm-hmm. and then you're forced to pick somebody. Well, people are in your ear and it's sure. highly stressful, it's right? Your like cognitive stuff is offline and you're sweating and nervous. Yeah. So it's really not practical. So about seven years into Odom's sentence, they began to expand the use of DNA and hair follicles became less reliable. So these hair and fiber experts started this process in the 1970s that they thought was very accurate and they would look at pigment distribution to hair patterns. So after a while, the scientists would believe that they were, (laughs) I love this so much. (laughs) They believe they were so good at it that Mm. they could notice even the smallest differences under the microscope. It's like, you know, I've been looking at hair so long that that is not Shannon's hair. We get so comfortable with that. That is such a human thing, you know, to just be not sit in that beginner's mind, right? Like not come to everything with a blank slate. We just yeah. don't. We, we do it in all professions. We're all guilty of it. Absolutely. We get very lazy. And confident. And too little too confident. <laughs> so a scientist by the name of Max Hawk realized that hair analysis was actually too subjective. You think? After yep. going, well, I can tell. <laughs> right? He said that scientists were making evasive statements such as, I have looked at thousands of hairs. Okay. I get that. This happens a lot when I've lost thousands of hairs. This happens a lot. If I'm going up against another expert who has testified and they'll say something like, well, it's in the science. Mm. Uh, uh, Thank you. That that's so (laughs) fucking evasive. Can you actually be specific? So somehow that leading that those statements would lead to credibility 
And just like they do in the work that I do, it's going to trick a lay judge or a yes. lay person or a lay attorney. Mm-hmm. And that judge goes, oh, it's in the science. Ah. Okay. <laughs> so the judge didn't understand how that wasn't empirical and accepted it no. as truth <laughs> yeah. because they saw it in things like Sherlock Holmes and CSI type shows where it's like, oh, they found a hair <laughs> and it's Shannon with the fork in the living room. <laughs> no, it's you. We're identical twins in this scenario. Oh, yeah, that's right. So maybe I'm it's I'm getting Kathy. blamed yeah. for your shit. Oh, see? Damn it. Messy. <laughs> so what DNA began to show is that the hair that looked microscopically indistinguishable was actually coming from different people. It's like, oh, you weren't really all that good. Yeah. <laughs> so on average, 11% of these cases were false positives, if not more, which we don't think sounds like a lot until you individualize people's lives who are going to prison and should not be. Right. Right. It's a lot of people. So Odom, um, he was already serving his sentence. He didn't get this information about DNA until well after his 20 year sentence was completed. Mm. Okay, so he missed getting to know his daughter, raising her, all this. He's just spending all this time in prison for this rape that he didn't commit. So people were ending up getting executed using this unsophisticated and invalid science of hair follicle matching. So the real perpetrator, here's the real shit kicker, though, that's really unfortunate, is that the real perpetrator of the crime um, Odom was accused of committed another sex offense two weeks after Odom's arrest. Uh. So the innocence project began using this method in the nineties and more than 75% of folks sentenced had been wrongfully accused. You, the method I'm talking about is they started to discredit and started to use the newer methods. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the nineties, the one that Jeffries had found okay. to discredit how the, like all these folks in the seventies went to prison using this hair follicle bullshit. And they were able to get more than 75% of these folks that were wrongfully accused to reverse their sentences. Massive. So by 2012, the results were astronomical. We started to realize, boom, we'd been doing this so wrong. The Golden State Killer in 2018 was solved using forensic genealogy. And after this, over 200 cold cases, some dating back to the 1950s, had been solved using the same technique. So essentially the DNA is loaded into a database with hopes of finding a match. I'm going to talk about a case here in a moment that shows the, how the first DNA database was developed. So I wanted to discuss the milestone case that really changed DNA forever in the use of criminal investigation. It's a really, really remarkable case. It happened about 37 years ago. And the story is a narrative, again, from the Murder With My Husband podcast, which is where I got a lot of the story from. But it's called um, The Case of Linda Mann and Don Ashworth. DNA evidence was first used in this criminal case of Linda Mann and Don Ashworth in 1986. The police had um, approached Jeffries, so we're back to Jeffries, Sir Alec Jeffries, team asking for help on a double rape and murder case of two teenagers from Narborough, just five miles southeast of his university. So this is in the United Kingdom. Though the crimes were two and a half years apart, 15-year-old Linda Mann... And Don Ashworth had both been raped and murdered very, in very similar ways. 
and they were both on their way back from like visiting a friend or from school and um, the police were looking for a serial killer and it actually had their eyes set on a 17 year old boy by the name of Richard Buckland. So we'll start there. So Kath Mann, she went by, I think her name is Catherine. She went by Kath, the mother of Linda. She had moved and raised her daughter in a small English village she had ended up remarrying a man by the name of Eddie Eastwood. And what we knew about Linda is that she and the family, they, they were actually doing very well adapting to the small village. Linda was um, very social. She had a strong peer group. She wasn't isolated. She didn't go off and do strange things that would, you know, question her safety. She, she was very independent and assertive. But in, uh, in November 1983, during a strong winter... Linda had stopped home to grab a meal with her stepfather, Eddie, and she was in between some babysitting jobs. And she had quickly, she had quickly come home after her second job. So, so sorry, let me go back. She had come home to eat with Eddie in between these babysitting jobs. She leaves and then quickly comes back after that, saying that um, the person that needed her to sit wasn't really feeling well, and so she just came home. And Eddie's like, okay. So then she told her mom and Eddie that she would be heading out again to see a friend. So she would stay there for a while, and then she would walk on to visit another friend. And this is only important detail because everything in this town, people just walked, Mm. right, from place to place. Yeah. And she would be heading out you know, to see a friend, she would stay for a while, visit another friend. And then she told her mom, you know, after I do all that, I'll be home around 10 o'clock. Mom said, okay, you know, no later than 10, just go do your thing, be home. At around 710, she, Linda had crossed paths with a friend who noted that she seemed like herself. She seemed like everything was fine. Mm -hmm. And she did arrive at her friend's house who happened to not be home, but her, her mom was, her friend's mom was home and she talked briefly with, with the girl's mother and said, okay, you know, see you later. I'm off to see this other friend, uh, Caroline, because I have to pick up some records that I left there, and then I'm going to go home. So what we know is that Linda Mann never ended up making it to Caroline's house. So her mom and stepdad, Eddie, uh, had been at the local bar hanging out that night, playing darts, drinking, whatever, come home after midnight. And they noticed that Linda is still not home. And Linda's oldest sister was starting to show a lot of concern because Linda was someone who was very responsible. She, if she was coming home at 10, she was going to be home at 10. There's, yeah. there's no question, right? Her mother starts to become increasingly concerned. So Eddie said, you know, I'm going to get my car and I'm going to drive around and see if I can find her. So they start to look in the neighborhoods, including um, this area called the Black Pad, Hmm. which was a long, was a road alongside a psychiatric hospital on very, very large grounds with many acres. So if you were to look up this case, you could see that this, this psychiatric hospital essentially split two different towns. It was in the middle of two different towns Mm -hmm. and there was a, a pathway along one side. And then there was a pathway along the other side that they called the black pad, which essentially was a shortcut. So if you took the black pad, it was just much faster to get home. Okay. Okay. So the two villages, like I said, were separate, separated by this very large hospital and the path allowed 
the people to go from one village to the other. And the black pad was the shortcut that Linda would often take, which is why Eddie was driving alongside to see if he'd find her. He parked and he started to walk along the black pad. One of the biggest issues with the black pad at night is it wasn't lit up at all, but it happened to be that evening there was a full moon. So he's like, okay, well, I have enough natural light. Let me see if I can walk along the path and find her. So he eventually goes home and then he says, you know, Kath, we got a reporter missing. She's not, I don't see her. Mm. So by 7.40 a.m. the next morning, hospital workers walking along the black pad and through the rods of the fence, he sees what he thought was a mannequin, you know, because again, our first instinct is not to be like, oh, that's a dead body. It's like, what the hell is that laying out there? You're in the shock. Yeah, we deny it. So because he's in such denial, he flags down a colleague to get a second read and they're like, no, that's that's a body. It's also not something most of us are used to seeing ever. Absolutely not. most, Most people go through their lives never seeing this at all. That's right. The colleague walks into the fenced area and and finds Linda partially nude, bruises and a scarf around her neck, no pulse. Mm. And so Eddie is at work that day and he finds out that the body had been found. So he rushes to the scene stating that he believes this is his daughter. um, And he begins to realize that he had walked right past that body the night before. So he later identifies the body as his daughter when he was called because he shows up. He's like, that's my daughter. They're like, sir, you can't be here. You got to go. So they call him back later. He then identifies it as her. So afterward, per usual, the police question Kath, who was like very dazed, could only somewhat participate in the interview. And police confirm that Linda was raped after her death. And that it must have been someone who knew the area because they were aware of the black pad. Mm. So then they start to go on some of these theories, right? Which is it must have been someone escaping from the hospital because it's a psychiatric hospital. It's not an awful Yes. Assumption. Must be someone mentally ill. It could have been. One Maybe. option. Maybe. I'm saying it's like not the But that's where they go. Uh, of course. Right? I know. I was I was not totally within without outside of the realm of possibility. Right. But also only one option. <laughs> only one option. But the police in there, to give them credit, the police goes, we don't think so. We actually believe it's someone who lived in the community. Mm-hmm. So shortly after they start to believe that her case is related to this rape that happens three weeks later, but then they later conclude that it's not related, it's its, its own offense. So the officers continue, before they knew it was a separate offense, this is where I was like, wow, i I wish we had more officers that did this. They continued to investigate it on its own, despite knowing that there, there was another case that had happened. They're like, you know, we don't know if it's related, so we're just going to focus on this. Mm-hmm. So they start to interview witnesses and they confirm that they saw Linda with someone they would describe as this punk rocker. You know, it's, it's the eighties in the UK. There's yeah. a lot of these folks. Right. Right. And seen, uh, they had seen them at a, a bus stop running across the road that night, causing this driver to, like slammed down on their brakes. So the police believe that this meeting was um, prearranged. Linda knew this person, which then started to open up this thought of like, maybe she wasn't as innocent. Right. (laughs) And not that that doesn't make her innocent, but maybe she had a whole group of people she hung out with that her parents knew nothing of. Right. Um, So the second this hits the news, people are now really frightened because 
people use that black pad all the time. So they go in and they install lighting in the footpath and people just start to avoid that area altogether. So during the funeral, they had cameras capturing um, everyone to see whether there was someone there that they had not interviewed that look, you know, because we know this about crimes, right? They will show up to a large gathering. Yes. They will be there. So although forensic science was not a thing yet, they did look at, this is gets so cool. They look at a blood type and blood enzymes from the semen taken from Linda's body, de- determining that the killer had a blood and PGM one plus enzyme profile <laughs> that would only match 10% of the male population. Mm. Okay. Okay. So as the months go on, investigation naturally starts to die out as much as they urged, you know, this person to step forward. Nobody did. So starting in March of 1985, the news articles began to discuss this new concept called DNA fingerprinting. So this discussed how it could revolutionize the court system with little to no error. But the fear was that it was super expensive. It may not be practical. And they began to take cases and check the efficacy. Now we are a couple years in and Thursday, July of 1986, another 15 year old girl named Dawn Ashworth with many of the same demographics, personality, and even went to the same school is walking one day. She's in good spirits. She's excited about a weekend with her parents. They're supposed to be going, traveling somewhere. She tells her mother after school that she'll be meeting up with friends. And her mom said, okay, just be home by seven. She takes this other footpath called the 10 pound lane, which was the other footpath on the other side. So it's opposite of the black pad, but it also cuts through to the other side of the town. Now, she's been warned by her dad to not use these paths because two years ago, someone who went to your school fucking got murdered using this, right? But Dawn was like, it's mid-afternoon and it's going to cut my travel by half. The lights aren't down. It's not the middle of the night. Fuck it. Yeah. So she makes it through to her friend's house. She takes that. She makes it through to her friend's house, but was told um, that her friend had already left. She's like, all right, well... By the time I go do anything else, it's going to be too late. So I guess I'll, you know, I'll just go home. Mm -hmm. So the last time they saw her alive, she was at the gate about to walk back through 10 pound lane to home. Mm. It's now 7.05 at night. And mom starts to have this deep feeling of dread, like moms do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And her mother checks in with her friend's mother's. They drive around the village. They locate her friends and told Dawn's mother that we haven't seen her all day. So Dawn's parents begin the search and they start to fear that what happened to Dawn has now happened to her daughter. So, or that what happened to Linda, excuse me, has now happened to Dawn. By 9.30 that night, they call to report her missing. The following morning, searchers with dogs scour the area And two days later, they find her body alongside 10 pound lane. She's found in a similar condition, violently raped, strangled to death. But again, they conclude that her sexual assault, her rape actually happened after death. So now we have this pattern. Right. Okay. They now determine it's the same guy. The semen taken from her body matches the original perpetrator. Gross. So this is where it gets... Really, this is where the DNA stuff starts to get really cool. 
not that I want it to be cool, two people died, but this this town launches a really deep investigation. They take a lengthy witness testimony from all these different sources. And one of the witnesses was this 17-year-old kitchen porter who worked at the psychiatric hospital and was seen on his motorbike the day that Don had gone missing and slowly driving by her house the day after her murder. So people are like, oh, mm. it, it's him. Sus. Mm-hmm. So he had approached one of the investigators stating he had witnessed who had, uh, he was a witness to seeing her enter the 10 pound lane. And his last, his name was Richard Buckland. And it was found that he had told one of his coworkers about the murder before it had hit the press. So he's arrested. They take him in for questioning. He has no alibi. He's struggling to answer questions. Well, he has cognitive deficits. He has a learning disability. And it eventually emerges that he knew things such as the position of Don's body, what she was wearing. But these were things that were not yet released. But he also worked at the hospital. So okay. he was in close proximity to the body. Right. Okay. So there was doubt. So there's doubt. So the police now conclude that this must be the same guy who murdered Linda Mann a few years before. Buckland denied this and he would have only, he would have only been 14 at that time. But multiple sources said that it was a teenage boy that had murdered Linda. So they're like, God damn it. What do we do with this? Right. So Chief Superintendent David Baker was aware of this DNA fingerprinting thing and reaches out to Alec Jeffries. So full circle, we bring this Sir Alec Jeffries back, who's just talking, who was just talking about it. So Jeffries knew about the murders living in the area and used the semen samples and developed what he then called a genetic signature, which we now call a DNA profile. So he concludes that the man who raped Linda Mann was not the same man who killed Don Ashworth. A week later, the full profile determined that the same man who killed Linda Mann had actually killed Don Ashworth. So what does this all mean? Buckland was not the perpetrator. They had matched Buckland with this other guy. It wasn't a match. Okay. So we see this in cases where someone has learning disabilities and they are easy to manipulate and, and coerced into confessing against their will and all this. So they're like, it is not this guy. So Jeffries had the test repeated by independent parties just to make sure that it wasn't Buckland because Buckland had admitted to it. Buckland believed that he had no way out of the situation. So he had felt pressured to confess, which is why he had ended up confessing. Buckland would have served a very long prison sentence if this DNA fingerprinting had not been a thing. So now they're left with no answers, yeah. a false confession. One guy who matches a very, very small semen sample or blood sample. Right. And they're like, what the fuck do we do? So this is cool. In 1987, a, a campaign was conducted by two villages where they asked more than 5,500 men between the ages of 17 and 34 to create the first DNA data database without even knowing that they were doing this. So they start to test men who had the same blood enzymes as the killer, which 10% only leaves about 550 left. Okay. Okay. None matched. So they're like, 
what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, that's not what we wanted. So now, a year after this, <laughs> a local bar, this man walks in by the name of Ian Kelly, and he discloses that his coworker, get this guy's name, <laughs> by the name of Alan Pitchfork, had asked him to give his blood under his identity. Kelly didn't live in that area, and therefore he had not already given blood. He simply told Kelly that he had already given a sample for another guy, and he said, hey, listen, I need someone to cover for me and take the test. So Kelly uses a doctored passport and provides the sample. (laughs) The manager of the bakery that these two men were working at was at the pub when Kelly confesses this story, it does not at all sit well with her. So she goes to the police a couple months later and says, listen, I don't know if this is worth looking into, but this is what has been confessed to me. They analyze his signature. They realize that it doesn't match with pitchforks. Pitchfork is in his twenties. He's married with two young boys. He has a successful bakery business on the side but multiple arrests for flashing and harassing teenage girls. He spends time at the very psychiatric hospital the women were found outside of. He had confessed to exposing himself to over a thousand women, which eventually escalated to assault and then murder. When he finally confesses that it was him, he had also confessed to having his infant son in the car when he murdered and assaulted Linda Mann. And through DNA, they found that he had additional assaults that he was never held accountable for. So what I love so much about this case is that it showed that through such, like, it only takes a very, 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 very tiny amount of evidence now with the sophistication of DNA profiling that we have to actually get the right person, but also that this town had developed the first DNA database without even knowing they had done that, right. which I think is really remarkable. And even with all this information, it took a few years, including false confessions and, and profiling the wrong people. But God, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah. Thank you for that. Very interesting. I didn't know any of that. It's, I didn't either. It's not only, a crazy case but also just knowing kind of how we as people like the things that we create and generate and are out of necessity right it's just like pushing through to get our needs met right so it's like the police and everybody just pushing through to figure out to really have this these families get closure yeah and and find the killer type of thing. Yeah. Really created this eventually. Yeah. I I had no idea it was this in depth and I had no idea about that case. And, and, and so, um, they learned a lot obviously through that process. Um, and I don't know, I just think it's so fascinating. And the fact that like they've, they've been able to now really make it down to a literal science where it's like, there's no doubt once we have that information, as long as it's not an identical twin, we have the person. There's no room for error. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Thank well, you so much for that, welcome. Kathy. You're very welcome. We learned things. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. Uh, please tune back in on Friday where we do some uh, 
horror stuff. We do horror stuff on Fridays and true crime stuff on Wednesdays usually. So thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone.